0: Good morning, please turn to John chapter 16, John chapter 16, title of my message is A Little While, which when we use that phrase it can mean a lot of things, right? A little while, a little bit, depending on your perspective. But Jesus has something to say about a little while. John 16, verse 16 and following. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, What is this he says? A little while. We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this? That I said, A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that the child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. And no one will take your joy away from you. God, again, I ask for your help. I pray for the power of the Holy Spirit, the unction of the Holy Spirit, and the leading of the Holy Spirit for this preaching this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read by way of introduction this morning something from James Montgomery Boyce and his commentary on the Gospel of John. He asks, are you one of those people who always wakes up in the morning with a smile on your face and a buoyant spirit in your heart? That's definitely not me. Uh, maybe some of you are like that or have those in your family who are like that. He says, I am not, and I would agree with that. So I confess that when I come to the verse like Psalm, verse, uh, Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. I have to understand it in poetic terms, he says. It is worth trying to do this, however, for the idea of joy after a nighttime of sorrow is an important biblical theme. A lot of us can relate to that, right? Time of sorrow, but then joy coming in the morning. We have the, in, this, in this passage, we have come to, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn into to joy. He says, as I look at these words, I suspect that this ambiguity is uh, intentional. It is not that the Lord is vague in his teaching, not at all. He makes things as clear as he possibly can make them. It is rather that by means of such ambiguity, he suggests more than one meaning. Here, the Lord is talking about a little while when he will not be seen, A time marked by sorrow, and then after that space of time, another time when he'll be seen again, which there will be joy. Apparently, this apparently deliberately suggests three different levels of interpretation. So he's saying there's three ways to really look at this. I narrow down to this first way. First, it can refer to Jesus' death and days of his entombment, during which he was not seen, and then the resurrection that follows with its renewed sight of Him. Second, it can indicate the periods before and after Pentecost. For now, because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we see Him in a spiritual way that has not been uh, possible previously. That is suggested in the tie-in of these verses with what we have been proceeding. We've seen the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We have studied that. Finally, he says, it may describe the church age, this short time in which we will not see Christ fit our, with our physical eyes, But after which, when the Lord will return in glory, we will see Him face to face and have earth sorrows transmuted into eternal joy. So I would say the first one is the main focus, and I would say by application, the third one is indeed for us as well this morning. But our first point is realization. Our first point is realization. Look at these ands in this first verse. In a little while, and you will no longer see me, and again in a little while and you and you will see me so we see and we understand there's a time when they will not see Jesus and there's a time when they're going to see him again a little while we have heard this before in chapter 7 verse 33 for a little while longer i am with you then i go to him who sent me says the lord and then in chapter 13 verse 33 little children i am with you a little while longer And in chapter 14, verse 19, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, he says. So we have heard this before. He has said this before. A little while is a short time. No longer see him. Why? Well, Jesus would be taken away. Very uh, brief time from where they were right now and when Jesus was teaching them. He would be taken away. There would be that mock trial. He would be tortured and crucified. He would die and they would no longer see him. But a little while and they would see him after his resurrection and before his ascension. The wording means a literal seeing of Jesus, not a metaphorical reference. So seeing with their eyes. Much of his farewell address has to do with sending the Spirit. So some take this as a little while to mean after Pentecost. But it does seem best to take this little while as referring to the crucifixion, which was hours away. Hours away. And remember that they were struggling, they were grappling, they were hearing these weighty teachings by the Lord. And here they are. And he's saying, I will see you again. Jesus was preparing them for what would happen within hours. The absolute horror of the crucifixion, which none of us can even comprehend, really. I mean, we can read about it. We could watch see an image of it, a video of it, a fake video of it. But to actually see it in person, we, we cannot comprehend such a, a horrific event after these years of being with Jesus, think about this. Witnessing him being in control of every situation. Nothing was outside of his control. And they could see this. Even over the, the waves of the sea, they would witness this trial. This was a brief time away. We're talking hours away. And then we see the account in Matthew 26, verse 57. i read it for us. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they may put him to death. They did not find any. Even though many false witnesses came forward, but later on, two came forward. This is in a little while. And said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourselves. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have to witness? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. And they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is the one who hits you? This was happening in a little while from this time where Jesus was speaking. And then, at the feast of the governor, was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner who they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas, and so the people gathered together. This is in chapter 27, verse 17. Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds who asked for Barabbas to be put, for Barabbas and Barabbas to put Jesus to death. And then we see indeed what happened. And as they yelled, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate handed him over to be crucified. This was what would happen in a little while. Some of the disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he is talking about? A little while. So picture this scene, the disciples, 11 of them, going back and forth, or at least some of them. A little while, and, and, and you will not see me. A little while, and, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father, so they threw that in as well from before. They were saying, what is this that He says, a little while, we do not know what He was talking about, what He's talking about. Notice none of them said, oh, maybe this is it, what He's talking about. This has got to be it right here. I know. No." They were discussing these things back and forth. Was there a contradiction? These disciples were puzzled. They were unsure, ignorant of these things. Yet they discussed it amongst themselves, and they didn't do what? They did not ask Jesus, who was right there. They did not say, what does this mean? Why not? Fear? Doubt? Pride? Sometimes we can be so prideful, we won't ask a question, right? And someone with the answer standing there right before us. And we think maybe we know it. They linked together a little while, and because they go to the Father. So either they perceive there is a link, or they, and they are continuing on with the, with the comments of verse 10. They're trying to put together the pieces, yet they're not asking Jesus to explain it to them. They seem to be focused on a little while, and when, and how long. And oftentimes that's what people focus on today. When will the Lord return, and how long will this be, and then will it be here, and this and that? But something that really focuses when they said, we do not know what he is talking about. Great. At least they admit in some way their ignorance. Regardless of any pride, lack of faith, whatever they had, at least they said, we do not know what he is talking about. They knew their limitations, at least right there. Knowing your limitations. Like someone who works on a house project. And they think they're a handyman. And the job is just bad. Right? And he didn't know his limitations. Or there's a guy at the gym recently, pretty uh, big gentleman, I would say, uh, we would call him swole or jacked in our vernacular today. Okay, and so uh, I'm sitting there doing my own thing, rowing and such, my back is feeling pretty good at this point, I have a lower back injury, so good days and bad days. And there wasn't that many people there, and he looks at me and says, can you spot me? And I said, okay, and he's sitting there doing tricep extensions with a 100-pound dumbbell, and it's on the ground there, and I can pick up 100 pounds. I just not. don't do it often. And he says, You know, can you hand this to me and spot me? I'm like, Sure. Hand it to him, pick it up first time. Boom, he's sitting there going with all these reps. I'm like, Wow, impressive, considering the guy's in his 60s. And he gets done again, and he says, Thank you, and such. And I've seen him there before, never talked to him before, ever. I've got my head earbuds in or whatever, he's got his. And so I go about my thing. He's like, I'm going to need another spot again. I'm like, great. And there in the other room is a meathead who could have picked it up with like one hand and handed it to him. But here I am saying, you know what? I got a lower back injury. I'm right here. Knowing my limitations, pick it up the second time. I feel a little move in the lower back. You know what I mean? A little move. Nevertheless, thankfully, I was okay uh, later on that day. But I, I got to talking to the guy. And I said, you know, just curious. You're in pretty good shape. How old are you? He's like, I'm 63, almost 64. It's like, really? You know, he's sitting there cranking out. And he says his, his wife gives him a hard time. He says, why don't you just exercise like regular 64-year-olds? And he started, he looked and he started pointing around. He's like, I don't want to look like the rest of these guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's just interesting. I got his name. He's got mine. Boom. My goal is eventually to share the gospel with him. But I should have known my limitations at that point. I said, hey, grab the meathead. And I'll just continue on in my my workout. Know your limits when it comes to theology, when it comes to people asking you questions. It's okay to say, I don't know. But I can try to find the answer. And we don't want to be a know-it-all either, presenting ourselves and coming in and saying, oh, look at this truth. No one wants to be around someone like that. There's always having to present more and, and have to put something on top and something on top of what someone says. I remember one time I was young in, in, the, in the Lord, and I was saying to a guy that I think I may have shared this before. I said, You know, the first thing we should do when we get up in the morning is to get down on our knees and pray. And he had to top me. No, the, we, before we even get out of bed, we should be praying. And I was like, Okay, sure thing. We don't want to be fake either pretending to know something when we don't know it. The disciples said, we do not know what he's talking about. It's okay to say that. I have no idea. Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, are you deliberating together about this? That I said, a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Now, when Jesus asks this question, it's doubtful that he is saying, oh, are you deliberating about this, by the way? No, he is going after them again and saying, are you deliberating about this? Bring, drawing them in. Jesus knew. And this is not necessarily uh, John expressing Jesus' supernatural knowledge here by saying that he knew or he perceived. Rather, they were saying these things out loud, and he could hear them and see them. He was right there. Could it be? It could be, though, that John is expressing here the omniscient mind uh, of the Lord, knowing their thoughts. Either way, he is right there with them. They don't want to ask him, but he has all the answers. So he throws out a question. Are you deliberating these things? Keep in mind, they were expecting the kingdom to come right then. And their understanding of what that meant. They have been giving some uh, heavy teaching leading up to all of this. All kinds of emotions must have been stirring inside of them as well. So we see here, though, Jesus responds in verse 20 with, Truly, truly, I say to you. So first we have the realization. And secondly, we have responses Two different responses of Jesus' departure. Truly, truly, I say to you, and we understand what this means the following words, the following things Jesus is going to say are very important, profound, so they better pay attention. And when we see, verily, verily, I say unto thee, or truly, truly I say to you, uh, we pay attention as well. You will weep and lament. He is saying that the time they're going to have is going to be very, very difficult. And this is just hours away. And there is nothing that can be done about this. You will weep. You will lament. While the world will respond with joy. The world is going to rejoice. But you will grieve. Weep. And lamenting, loud wailing, common in ancient Near East, common during this time, loud weeping and wailing. We see this in Luke chapter 23 and verse 27. I'll just read it for you. And following him, this is when Simon was bearing the cross. When they led him away, they seized him, Simon of Cyrene, coming from that country and placed him on a cross, placed him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him, following Jesus, was a large crowd of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. And Jesus turned to them and said, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. We see that they were wailing and weeping. And Jesus says, weep for yourself. And then Mary, weeping outside the tomb of Christ, yet the sorrow... Indeed, turn to joy. In John chapter twenty, I read this for us as well, verse fourteen. When Jesus had said to her, "Woman, why are you weeping?" She turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, "Woman, why are you weeping? Why? Are, what? Who are you seeking?" Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he has said these things to her. Indeed, grief turned into joy right there for Mary. Deep grief turned to joy. Although Jesus does not define this closely nor specifically here, this rejoicing and grieving, in chapter 16 and verse 20, Who does the turning from grief into joy in the life of a believer? The Holy Spirit of God. If we do not have the Holy Spirit of God, we cannot have this joy that Jesus is talking about. If you do not know Jesus, you cannot have this joy that Jesus is talking about. Grief into joy. They may not have grasped exactly the hows and the whats and the wins. This would take place. Nevertheless, Jesus is saying, the grief that you will have will be turned into joy. Grief not replaced by joy, but turned into joy. There's times in our lives when we are grieving, but yet we can have joy as well. Right? We're grieving loss, but we have the joy that the Lord has given us. Or a time in our life when we are really grieving in sorrow and downcast, and and we're in prayer, and the Lord just ministers to us, and by the Holy Spirit of God, that that grief we have is turned into joy, even if it be for a brief period of time. And he shows us the glimpses of his loving grace in that time of sorrow. The cross would be a time of sorrow for them at first, but then turned into joy. And then Jesus uses childbirth as an illustration in the following verse. Verse. Let's see this here. Verse 21. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Now, this is something only women can relate to. Men can observe this, men can hear this, but only women can go through this. Now, we live in a society that says men can be women and women can be men and men can get pregnant, which is just ridiculous. It shows us where we are as a society, that people would actually say such things. Depravity. Even there's an emoji of this. A pregnant man. The Bible is clear here. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain. Because her hour has come. Let me read this from Leon Morris. Elsewhere in scripture, the thought of the travailing woman is generally used to bring about such thoughts as the suddenness and the uh, inevitability of birth when the time has come. Here the thought is rather the contrast between the state of mind of the mother before and after the birth. During travail, she is in great distress. But when the child is born, the distress is forgotten. What matters then is that a child is born into the world. And that should matter too. There's various perspectives, at least there was when I come from, is where are they going to have the child? Are they going to do home birth? Oh, are they going to go to a midwife center? Or are they going to go to the hospital? Right? And there's various perspectives. And people hold this. uh, Hold your particular perspective. Like they are more holy because they are choosing this way. Why don't they just all rejoice that a child is born healthy in this society? So let us not hold to that. Let us, uh, let us not hold to such positions in such a way we alienate others in such perspectives of where a child is going to be born. How a lady chooses to do this. Uh, in fact, she's the one that actually has to go through it, Right. The background of these words is found in Old Testament passages, which combines the thoughts of childbirth and resurrection. Such passages point to an anguish like that of childbirth from which the new Israel would emerge. This leads to the well-known thought of the birth pains that would precede the coming of the Messiah. Such thoughts are important as an understanding of the present passage. Why is Jesus is using this illustration here this grief turned into joy. And most of us, if not all of us, in some way can relate to verse 21, if lady going through this, if man being able to observe this. Many applications for us, this grief turned into joy. But for the disciples, they were about to witness the horrors of the Lord being crucified. And it's not clear how many of the disciples witnessed which part of the crucifixion. Well, all of it. Some of it. But they knew that at that time Jesus was suffering and would die. And the best that we can relate to such a situation is in when we know someone is going to suffer physically and we are not right there. Like at this time. But this is the Son of God suffering excruciating for the for sinners like like us. As Christians, we look back to the cross and we have sorrow when we consider what the sinless Savior went through. When we consider the garden when we read that. It ought to cause us to have somewhat of sorrow when we consider these things. We grieve also when his name is mocked today. Do we not? Do we still cringe when we hear the Lord's name used in vain? Or are we so desensitized to that? The fact that the sinless Son of God was crucified breaks our hearts because we know that He did it for us. Because He loves us. Spurgeon says, The sword which pierced His heart through and through was forged by our offenses the vengeance was due for sins which we had committed and justice exacted its rights at his hands consider christian the reality that your sins caused jesus to suffer an agony and die on a cross we should be grieved by this but our grief our grief is turned into joy is it not We would agree with the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we always go back to, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And Mr. McGuire this morning spoke of this new song we have in our mouths. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. They sang a new song Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This new song, this grief turning into joy. But the contrast to that, the other response is, as Jesus says, the world will rejoice. And this goes back to what we have been studying of how much the world hates Jesus and hates Christians. The world will rejoice. Direct, complete, violent contrast to the reaction from the disciples. The world, we remember from verse 18 through 24 and and other scriptures, hates Christ. And would rejoice when He was crucified and put in the tomb. If there's one thing that this world rejoices in today, it's that Jesus is no longer here on this earth. If the world had a chance to murder the Son of God, Jesus Christ, again, they would do so and they would celebrate it. I think it was Washer who gave a hypothetical example here that if Jesus were to open the door to hell right now, and give those in hell another chance to come out. All they would have to do is bow the knee to him. What would they do? They would curse him. They would exclaim that they would rather spend eternity in anguish than bow the knee to him. And they would slam the door on his face. That's how much hatred this world has for Christ. The response. The world rejoices, but we as Christians, we have grief that is turned into joy. And Jesus says this joy, and no one will take your joy from you. Look at verse 22. Rejoicing. So we have realization, responses, and rejoicing. Therefore, you too have grief now. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Jesus, our compassionate Savior, recognizes and acknowledges that they have grief. And he recognizes and acknowledges when we are grieving as well. And for them, it's a grief that will increase. Pain they are going through now, Pain as they see Jesus suffering. Pain when he dies. But it's not the end of it, is it? He says, you, you have grief now, but I will see you again. He doesn't say, you will see me. Jesus says, I will see you again. The emphasis is on Christ seeing his people. Christ caring for his people. Christ regarding his people. I will see you again. As if his desire is to see them again. And then your heart will rejoice. When would this be for them? It would be after his resurrection when they would see him face to face. Just as we Christians will rejoice when we step into eternity and see Jesus face to face. Isn't there times in our lives when we say, how long, O Lord, is this going to go on like this? How long, O Lord, will I go through this pain and this anguish, whatever it may be? How long, O Lord, must I grapple with this particular sin? How long, O Lord, but knowing that we will see him? And further, at this time now, Christians, We do have a joy that he has given to us that cannot be taken away from us, no matter what. It's a joy he has given to us. No one can take it from us. Does that mean we are always clicking our heels, like skipping through the daisies? No. There's times when we are going through hard times. We're not feeling joyful, especially first thing in the morning, as boys mentioned. But this joy that he gives us, no one will take it away from us. The world doesn't know it. Only Christians know it because it has been given to us. Again, it's not that believers will never be sorrowful. We know sorrows come and sorrows go. But believers, we have come to understand the great significance of the cross, have we not? As far as we have been in our sanctification God revealing to us as we've studied out the cross. We've come to understand what Jesus has done for us and it gives us tremendous joy. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And it's by the cross that he rescued us from the domain of darkness. And this deep-seated joy that we can have, that we do have, the world just simply cannot take away. They can try all they want. And the world knows nothing of the joy of knowing Christ. And for the Christian, the gospel of Jesus Christ never gets old. It is everything. Because he ought to be everything to us. So consider some reasons why Jesus may have said these things to his disciples and for us today. First reason, by way of application, why did Jesus say these things? Well, for comfort, first off, by way of being comforting to them. In Luke chapter 9, he says, in verse 23, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. This comfort of knowing Christ. And whatever the cross in our life whatever the cost would be for us in this world. We know that in a little while, Christ will receive us into glory. And as Revelation says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So for comfort. Also as a reminder to draw near to Christ. As a reminder, he says these things that we would draw near to Christ. As Philippians 3 says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. To be able to say these things, like the Apostle Paul, Whatever were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. As a reminder to draw near to Christ with fervency, By way of comfort. Also, as a reassurance that we are his. A reassurance that we are his. I will see you again, he says, in a little while. As a reassurance that we belong to Jesus Christ. Also, as a reminder of his return. A reminder of his return. And this is something we will see a little bit this evening. Peter tells us how to live during this time. First Peter 4. I invite you to turn there for a moment. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 10. Consider a little while and I will see you. Jesus says a little while. And consider the urgency and the fervency we are to live in. This realization that he gives us and the responses to what he says, the responses that are different from a Christian, from the world, and this rejoicing that we have, this joy that no one can take away. And these reminders and these reasons Jesus may have said these things, by way of comfort, reminder to draw near to Christ as a reassurance that we are his, and a reminder of his return and how we are to live in this time. Chapter 4 of First Peter and verse 7. Think of Peter writing this letter later on. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. This sound judgment and sober spirit, these are actions that go together. They are not to be separate, to be of a sound mind. And to be of sound or sober spirit, for what purpose? For the purpose of prayer. And he says, the end of all things is near. If we consider the end of all things is near, and Jesus says, in a little while I will see you, how much more should we be meeting together and praying together as the uh, uh, Hebrews, I believe it's chapter 10, tells us to do, not less and less and less, but more and more and more as the end of all things is near. As Jesus says, in a little while, and I will see you. We are to live with urgency and fervency, not to kick back. And sober spirit, sound mind for the purpose of prayer. And above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Indeed, the love of some will grow cold, the Scripture says. Be hospitable to one another without complaints. And each that has a gift given from God, each one has received a gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And we'll see the rest, Lord willing, this evening. Again, the realization, the responses, and the rejoicing. And Jesus says these things in a little while. I will see you again by way of comfort, by a reminder that we are to draw near to Christ with fervency, the reassurance that we indeed belong to him. And as a reminder of his return, let us pray. Oh God, as we looked over these scriptures this morning, as you tell Jesus, as you told the disciples in a little while, and you will not see me as you would go to the cross and you would die on that cross for sinners like us here this morning. You would die on the cross. You would absorb the wrath of the Father. You would die for sinners you who knew no sin would become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ you made a way Jesus says I am the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father but by me We consider that you went to the cross, Lord, and that ought to cause us to grieve, but it also causes us for our grief to turn into joy. Because you know you did that for us, and you did that for your glory. You did that out of love for your people. And that ought to cause those in here who do not know Christ to turn to Christ knowing that the cross is the only way, knowing that Jesus is the only way, knowing that the, the narrow gate is the only way, and repentance and faith is the only way. And bowing the knee to Jesus is indeed the only way that they could have forgiveness of their sins. And that could be, they could be able to be one of the ones that Jesus says, I will see you again. We know that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord to the glory of the Father. God, let it be that everyone under the sound of my voice is prepared to meet Jesus Christ as Savior. Prepared to stand before him. That none would leave here on a beeline to hell. Lord, help us to embrace your word today that we have studied and that it would change our hearts for the better. And we glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.